Welcome back to Decades Under Roads. This is Maddie. And this is Catherine. Um, first off, thanks for being here. And Catherine and I just wanted, wanted to kind of do a check-in. A little and, update. Yeah, a little update as far as scheduling goes. We are really excited with uh, the feedback we've gotten from family, friends, and some strangers, which we'll be able to recap with some of our viewers that have emailed us or left reviews, which helps us out a ton. So uh, leave a review or uh, give us stars. Give it, what's, what's the difference? Like, subscribe, yes, give I'll, us reviews. Please, please, please. All those things. So that we can reach more people because right now, love you, Mama Jean, but yeah. you are um, the only person. Yes, <laughs> she is consistent in her support. We, we give credit where credit's due. So, um, we, oh, first, we also want to give a shout out to Brad. If you're still listening, thank you for being our first emailer. Yeah. Big milestone. I Someone know. listened all the way through, emailed us and just, yeah, it was super heartfelt. Um, was coached by coach Mitchell, who was our first guest on the show. And it was, yeah, it was just a really cool uh, way to connect. <laughs> yeah. So if you want to get a shout out, email us. But with that being said, scheduling wise, uh, we're we're really working hard to get at least at least two out a month. Yeah, we're gonna try and do every other week mm -hmm. while we're still getting started, and then we're gonna try and accumulate a backlog. So when my Maddie is in the throes of buyer season, we can continue to put out good content and may or may not have a few guest um, hosts. I guess yeah, yeah, totally guest hosts come on and keep us running through her busy season. So. That's kind of our plan, and we just wanted to keep you guys in the loop if you are still following us and still there. And just some cool things as we learn on the go and people who continue to listen. So I get to look at kind of the analytics of our podcast, and to date, and we started this a month, a month ago. ago, a month ago almost, and we've had 358 downloads. So that is super cool. I don't know how to put this without sounding like... We don't have 300 friends, so it's cool that 300 people have listened to this. So totally. our reach is bigger than just our friend group who's been great and supportive and passing us suggestions of people hit to interview. So we love that and, you know, keep it up. And we're figuring out how to interview people over Zoom for the people who aren't super local to us. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's the goal. We're going to keep it up. And just wanted to let you guys know that. So. Yeah, we've got a lot of work behind the scenes going on. And uh, yeah, we've had a lot of different cool connections with people that we would not have, we would not have had a conversation with had we had not started this. So um, definitely a lot of little wins that are turning into meeting some really cool people and letting them walk down memory lane. All right, we're welcoming Trish Wallace to the show today, who is a recent semi-retired uh, Forest Service employee who's kind of done it all from hotshotting to AFMO, FMO, planner. Yeah, I, fuels, mom, athlete, all, all the things. So many hats she's worn throughout her career, and yeah, just an amazing woman with some pretty funny stories and... We're so happy to be able to chat with her. Yeah, I think um, something that was really interesting for me as I, you know, talked with people going into the research of, of this podcast and kind of brainstorming, you know, how, how can we really connect with Trish and get her comfortable to talk about some of her, some of her highlights in her career and some of her, uh, you know, awesome moments that she'll never forget. Um, leadership came to mind a lot of times of how, how Trish learned to manage people 
how she um, how she got buy-in just with her own natural ability as a leader and um, you know being able to being able to hike and do the work and do all those hard things um, but in turn evolve evolve as a leader and learn to lead people um, and really have a, a diverse background going into her leadership later in life uh, as an FMO on the district um, and working on a type 2 management team as ops there's there's a lot of things that you've got to juggle in that capacity. Um, and that's just her professional life, but to be a mom and to be, to be married to someone who's also, you know, in fire and in, in the forest service and in a career that is outdoor going. Um, I, it was, it was really cool, uh, to share in this conversation with her and, and to talk to one of your mom's role models yeah. when she was coming up in the agency was is pretty cool. Because I didn't know that when we were finishing the episode. You guys were kind of chatting about that. And yeah. to know that your mom also admired her so greatly is, yeah. is and, pretty cool. And you talk about, yeah, just a full a full circle moment for me being, um, being honestly, I mean, just a young adult, a kid, honestly. But to, to chat with someone that I grew up knowing as, you know, that's Trish was Trish was the model. She was the standard. And, um, you know, Bill Mitchell, we talked, he was our first person, but he was a gold standard, but to have grown up with Trish Wallace as a name in, in my house of someone that both my parents looked up to and so many people around me, fire aunts and uncles really looked up to is I, yeah, that was an unforgettable afternoon just to chat with her and to hear her side of the story. It's kind of funny because, um, when we went to Bill's retirement, your dad kind of mentioned like he met Bill, he was... Like, this is the model for the family I want. I want this beautiful wife. I want this beautiful family. I want to have it all and mm-hmm. be successful in fire. And it sounds like your mom looked to Trish, and that was your mom's gold standard gold standard as well. Like, husband in the agency, beautiful kid, you know, had it all, had a successful career. And it sounds like that's kind of like, now yeah. we got the gold standard for your mom. Yeah. So, you know, that whole kind of stuff was really neat to yeah. see. And for you to grow up in that is so amazing to have such good role models. Like I'm very envious of that. So we will stop rambling about Trish and yeah. we'll get to it because she's great. Oh, and one last thing. I realized that we were being a little cavalier with the uh, government acronyms. So for those of you who aren't in the loop, um, FMO is fire management officer. AFMO is assistant fire management officer. Ops is just an abbreviation for operations. We'll try and be better about that in the future. We're live. Okay. Uh, hello, Trish. Can you introduce yourself? My name is Trish Wallace, and I am a retiree from the U.S. Forest Service. Um, I still participate on a Type 2 incident management team, but other than that, I'm retired. Right on. Well, welcome to the show. We're happy to have you. And uh, I think we'll start just by having you give us a recap of your career. So I started with the Forest Service in 1986. Um, I played sports. I played basketball at Eastern Oregon State College. It was at the time. And they were recruiting um, from the college, from the sports teams. And so um, I was recruited to be on a hotshot crew, which is kind of unusual. Right off the bat? Right off the bat. Because um, usually you have to have some sort of experience, fire experience, Mm -hmm. to be on the hotshot crew. But back then, um, you were allowed to have 18% of your crew that didn't have to have um, um, experience. And so they were trying to 
diversify their crew, so they were recruiting hard to the athletic teams at the college. Mm -hmm. And also, remember that time frame, the Descent Decree in California came out, and that was, um, you were, I, I don't know the exact law, but the impact was is they needed to do better at getting um, diversity yeah. and how they treated people and stuff. And so that kind of bled over up into the Northwest, I believe. Mm -hmm. And so there was a big push to get, um, you know, diversity. And they were looking at the athletic crews to get them. So anyway, I started in 1986. Um, and it wasn't too bad of a transition because I grew up on a farm. And so I did a lot of farm work and drove a lot of farm equipment. And you had to use a shovel. What yeah. else did they make? had to use a shovel. <laughs> Actually had fires in the wheat field at times that we had yeah. to respond to. Yeah. yeah. And um, also uh, sports, you know, team. team yeah, we both played college sports. It does translate really well. Yes. Yeah, how to live with people. Yep. How to talk to people. How to be in close quarters with people that you maybe aren't. Be super. part of the team. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, anyway, it was my first year was an awesome year. We um, we went to Alaska. I'd never been to Alaska, so right off the bat, we're remote, nice. flying, drop food boxes. Um, just, you know, dig per, uh, freezers in the permafrost yeah, and yeah. beds. And I was a vegetarian. I've always been a vegetarian, so it was a little more complicated for me back in that day to figure out what I was going to eat, but somehow I managed. Wow. Probably ate a lot of Snickers bars. Yeah. <laughs> the MREs are a little low on vegetarian. Well, there were sea rats, too, back then, too. So oh. when I first started, it was sea rats, which were even grosser than Was that like a lot of rice and beans then? Sea rats? No, the food boxes didn't have a lot. They were heavy to meat, potatoes, and stuff. And so I ate a lot of potatoes. They're a lot more diverse now for yeah. people's dietary needs. Yeah. But back then they weren't. And so I just, I honestly don't even really remember what I ate because it, there wasn't a lot of yeah. vegetarians, I can tell you that. <laughs> it was survival mode. It was survival mode. Oh, and I did take, after that I did learn to pack freeze-dried food and stuff for myself and for myself. But. Gotcha. So, and then 1986 was also a very busy um, fire season on the Wallow Whitman. Um, that was probably one of the busiest years, actually, in the last 30 years wow. that has been here. And they had a big fire camp at the college and stuff. So, anyway, yeah. we responded to a lot of fires in Northeast Oregon, specifically on the Wallow Whitman and Umatilla. That'd be pretty course. cool. So, yeah. Was, so. Did Anthony Lakes burn in the mm -hmm. There was that fire up there, and then um, down Dooley Mountain, Huckleberry, Cornette, oh. Oh, and wow. then the Wait, Brazil. is that the Huckleberry fire that Bill Mitchell, do you know Bill Mitchell? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is that the one that he's, like, famous for Probably. getting yes. in the middle of? You remember yeah. that Huckleberry shirt? that Joe gave him at his retirement party. Yes. That's what it was in reference to. I think oh. he had to be involved in some uh, litigation yeah, they, there. Oh, yeah. Yep, yep. Um, and I'll get to some of my story. That <laughs> okay, full okay. circle, full circle. <laughs> mm. Not necessarily Bill, but litigation. Yeah. yeah. And um, so, yeah, there was a lot of fire. The Frizzell fire on the face of Mount Emily. Uh -huh. um, and then their three cabin. And there was there was a lot of things going on on the Lao women. So... It was a good year, and it, but it did end pretty abruptly in September, and I was already done with school. A number of people had to go back on the crew, and so um, they did, and our boss, um, Greg Vigari at the time, um, had gotten a call from uh, Regents, um, 
uh, Five California and said they needed um, people to come down and fill on crews and fill on engine crews and stuff. And they had three shot crews they were looking to put people on. And there was only three of us that volunteered. But I thought, what the heck, I'll go. Yeah. And so anyway, I signed up to go. And then like two days before I left, I got word that they didn't want females on the crew. And so they said, well... Um, we get we have an engine crew you could be on. I'm all like, well, I'm good with that. And so I went down to the San Gorgonio um, up by Big Bear and was stationed down in Mill Creek uh, on an engine crew, which was a new experience because I just got out of college and got on the shot crew. Yeah, so wow. it was fun um, doing progressive hose lays and just learning about the engine and stuff. And But the funny thing is, is that we didn't respond to any fires on the engine everything we responded to was a hike in mm. and so a little side note um kind of funny story i we the first fire we responded to we hiked into and there was five of us on the engine crew and i had a saw and a saw pack and stuff and yeah. the hotshot crew the el dorado the one that turned me down was was hiking in and i passed them <laughs> Trish. And I got up to the fire and I just did what I do on the shot crew, took off the saw pack and started putting the saw line, you know, and stuff. Then here comes our engine rub, rub. foreman. <laughs> yeah. Here comes the engine foreman and um, he comes, he, the hot shot soup comes over and this, I don't even remember what his name was, wants to know if you want to come fill in on their crew. Huh. And I said, no thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I said, I got turned down once and I'm quite content. I'm all settled here. I'm on the engine crew. I've met people. I'm settled. No, yeah. I'm good. Thank you. And honestly, they were a pretty scrappy looking crew. So yeah. it was kind of... <laughs> no love loss there. there. Yeah. There was no love loss. So anyway, it's kind of karma. But anyway, so I did that and then um, uh, came back, you know, in December and worked up at the ski hill for Blue Mountain Sports back when they did rentals. But um, I was encouraged to put in for, funny, I just get out of college, one year, not even a year, season of fire experience, yeah. and they want me to put in for a permanent position down in California on that engine crew as a squad. And I thought, well, okay. So I, you know, did my app and everything. Yeah. And then the closer, they actually selected me, and I'm all like, no. Yeah. I didn't want to go to Southern California. It was there was a lot of stuff going on. There was always drug busts up in the mountains where we were, and Dang. crime, and someone got murdered at the ATM I used, and it was it was a little shocking for a small town person. Yeah, that's a little eerie. And um, where did you grow up? Here and in oh, okay. vicinity of hundred miles gotcha. around in Hermiston area, and so um, I said no. And he was pretty persistent, but I still said no. Yeah. And so I just went back to the shop crew and. Um, you know, I remained in, you know, for a couple, three years, um, just doing um, line squad and saw squad and, you know, learning how to use a saw good. Yeah. And, we, and in the springs and the falls, we always did project work. So we got a lot of saw time and we got to plant, we got to thin, we got to burn, we lots of thinning. All the things. All the things, um, all over the forest. We'd go and stay up at Sled Springs and camp out for a month or whatever. But, oh, so we got a lot so of saw experience cool. and stuff. So. Um, come 1989, um, they were, they wanted to, um, um, offer three permanent positions on each of the crews, the Grand and Union Hotshots. And so I was offered one of the positions and I had the choice and that's still pretty fast when you look at terms of getting into Yeah. Leadership. Cause you, you look at that that's a three, that's a three year yeah, timeline exactly. from being yeah. straight out of college to yep. being offered a squad leader on an engine 
to yeah. within the next two yeah. years. It kind of shows you the pressure, you know. Yeah. It, it does. It shows you the pressure. So um, anyway, um, and Mark was the same way, my husband. So he he only had he had three years of fire experience too, and he got a position. So were you, you guys, guys were, on the crew together? No, he was on the Grand Nose on Union. Oh, okay. So we were on two separate so you guys were really... We weren't even dating then. Well, yes, we were dating then. We dated started in nineteen. But you were parallel growing through the system. Yeah. Wow. And so, so uh, anyway, I accepted the position. Well, and I was being recruited to go jump out of um, North Cascade too. I really kind of wanted to do that, and so I was training that winter to do that. But then I couldn't pass up a permanent position, so I, yeah. I went with the permanent position and said um, no to the jumper bug. Went, said no to the jumper bug. Uh, and um, so I was saw squad leader, sea card faller for the crew. Um, it within then, three years you got a sea faller. Mm-hmm. Dang girl! Wow. Well, it was probably closer to four, five years, but still, that's pretty quick. So yeah. But we did a lot of sawing. Yeah. Remember the months we started in March sometimes yeah. in April, we saw until the crew come on. It didn't come in come on back then until like June and then we would saw until the snow got too deep Mm -hmm. to so we did a lot we did overstory lodge pole removal I had so many hours on a saw by then it was by the time I was a saw squad boss I really I could take a saw apart and do all kinds of stuff you know yeah Uh, that's still just it's still I mean I know when we were on a hand crew on a district it was like trying to fight the guys to like grab a saw yeah had to have like our yeah. own one yeah. Yeah. put pink on it or <laughs> yeah, something exactly. so they wouldn't touch it it's yeah. hard to get saw time yeah so well I, I again I think just the crew it helped just all of the because there wasn't that many people that could go thin before and after yeah. because everybody went back to school and I wasn't in school anymore so just that so availability that, that availability just there and right the, there at the yeah. right time yep that's awesome so um, so I did that and then um, you know I yeah I did advance rather rapidly in the shot crew I was a foreman within like um, seven years so wow um, on the shot crew and um, yeah, and then I had Logan. So I, I, I actually, um, in 95, I was still officially on the shot crew, but I had Logan. She was a new baby. And so instead, I ran a thinning crew for the district. I, I bumped over and Dang. did that and then went back and helped recruit and hire for the shot crew that winter and was going to go back on and then decided I really couldn't go back on the crew with a baby in 95. Yeah, because it would have been the winter of. And so I, um, I said... I just said, you know, I understand because I have a permanent position and I'll, I'm confident in finding another job somewhere else. So yeah. I understand if this is a hardship for you all and and I'll be on my way. And the, the, um, I ended up running a thinning crew and then I, I have a business economics degree. So they bounced me over to shadow uh, John McManus, who was the fire planning planner for the forest. And I shadowed him for almost a year because he was retiring and learned all the models and wow. did all the stuff. And um, so anyway, I ended up with that position. And that was a um, that was a really good position for learning different models and yeah. just policy and stuff you don't get on boots on the ground. You totally. Know? So that was, um, that was a good position. And I actually, um, at that point, we were redoing the fire organizations mm-hmm. on all 
you know, all force as far all as regions. The, like the org charts and how that looked? Well, just what resource. So it was an analysis that I had to do that determined the kinds, types, amounts, and locations based on our fire history. It was models you plugged data into and you ran. And so you found the most efficient organization. Do they teach that in a class now? Because my husband's taking some class that he's been showing me the well, they, model. It's so. a new version now. They have, so I was, I did also did fire planner later mm. in my career and they changed the model. So this was an old model, but the forest really that, that organization we kept for quite some time until like probably 2000. That's wow. cool. Um, and um, yeah, and so it was both aerial and ground resources and um, based on, you know, like road access or mm -hmm. value, you know, what, not so much values at risk at that point. That wasn't really considered in this version of the, but anyway, it's intense because I had to present it to the WO yeah, what was, and get buy off. What was that transition like? Because I mean, you go from being a point person with boots on the ground mm -hmm. to 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 being in in lack of a better term a classroom setting where you're having to take all these data pieces yeah, and yeah. more of a public face yeah. yeah and there was three or four years before that was certified and so there was a lot of time in portland and california there was a lot of meetings and a lot of um to, again kind of like school again I, I think that's my entire career has been i get bored and i find something new and, and i have it's like going back to school because you have to learn it all again, but um, I enjoyed it. I did. It was intense, but and I love models and yeah. computers, and so it worked out good. And Logan was just with you. Logan was a baby, and so Mark at that point he was out of fire, and he was working in. Um, I think he was working in fisheries at that point, and so when I traveled, he would be home because um, I also took some details to the Washington office and worked on some national fire budget mod models they were looking for volunteers and stuff and oh that sounds fun so i went and did that wow. and um not for very long but enough to kind of get a sense of it and yeah what goes on in the wo yeah that's yeah. a big office <laughs> well, yeah. um but anyway um so i did the fire planning and then in 1998 um the afmo fills position and, and in that time frame, too, when I had Logan doing thinning crew, I was also doing fuels stuff, doing fuels tech um, inventory, helping with writing EAs and that kind of stuff, learning that kind of rope. So I had some of that under my belt as well. When I, so I got the AFMO fuels position when I came back in wow. 1998. And um, I, that was probably my most favorite position um, of my career because you got your hands dirty in the field and you got to recon and be in the field and then you got to run all kinds of analysis and write stuff and yeah. I loved models and so mm -hmm. GIS and all that and I got to it both the best of both worlds there so that's a cool that combo fun. that was a cool combo and so I did that until 2003 and then um I'm a five to seven year position. I yeah. Move on. I get you bored. got a system here. You've got I get good... bored. I get bored. I really do. I think I have ADHD sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, not to make fun of anybody, but I do. I get, um, you know. Anyway, um, in 2003, I got the fire planner position again because they were reopening it up and they they had all these new models and then they, they were adding stuff, values at risk. Now mm -hmm. they wanted, it wasn't just about who can get to the fire fastest and, you know, mm -hmm. um, the most efficient. It was more about, well, what's the values at risk that you're sending those resources mm -hmm. to? And so that came into the puzzle. And 
Um, so then I worked with a lot of resource staff at the forest level and stuff because everybody had to put values on stuff that goes into this model. Yeah. And then we fed the fire data and stuff again and redid that, but the model ended up being a flop. Um, it just, it, I just had so much time to play with it. It was, it was, it was broken from the get go. It just, you could make it do whatever you wanted. I could make it say we needed 15 helicopters on the forest, Dead. or I could make it say, you know what I mean? It yeah, was just too, too many easy. variables. It was too many variables and too easy to manipulate. And mm. so it wasn't giving you an honest answer. And yeah. So that kind of went kaploop and kind of got put on hold because they were, you know, kind of redoing it all. And, yeah. um, at that time, two, that was about 2007, and um, uh, the FMO position, Larry Aragon, the FMO, detailed into um, the air attack position, and so I detailed into the FMO that summer just to get some more experience. And, you know, as a, as a FMO fills and some of the other positions, I always got to be a duty officer and mm-hmm. work on it. So it, it was like I knew the business. Of it was the a pretty organic unit. transition. Yeah, it was a fairly organic transition. And so, um, and we had a pretty busy year in 2007. We had, you know, the, we supported one type two team and two type three teams, which for LeGrand is, yeah. is, is pretty good. So, um, so I did that and then I applied for the position and got it in 2008. Wow. And then 2013, I did it till 2013 and then 2013 I... I had 25 years, 49 years old, 25 years, and I, you know, I was vested in firefighters' retirement, and mm-hmm. so I decided that um, I would do something different, just go crazy, and so I jumped in budget and admin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do still crazy. on the timeline. Yeah. <laughs> budget and admin. Very much on the timeline. Still up okay. by five to seven years. I need to find a new position. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh my gosh. So I did budget officer, which now that was crazy because that was like being in some PhD program or something, learning all the budget models. Yeah, when you look at how much money it costs to get things moving and get people paid and... Mm-hmm. I well, mean, and it was just, it's like all the, yeah, just working with the regional office and all the, it was crazy and knowing all of the, um, did the finance side of things, you know, for claims and there's just so much the whole... And you did that meant. for the forest. Yes. And the then... Forest. Was that the same, that translated to the Type 2 team? No. Okay. I, type 2 team was always, and I'll, I'll kind of recap that okay. when I'm done here, because I've always done the Type 2 team the whole, my whole own career. That's been another job. By, it's, you know, gotcha. By proxy. And, yeah. And so, um, anyway, um, I did that and then was a forest staff officer the last three years of my career. and. Then decided it was time to retire in 2019, so I did. <laughs> and what has what is fulfilled for retirement? Um, well, like I said, I still do fire team stuff, and okay. I. So let me let me recap fire. Um, even though I was in these other positions, once I got off the shot crew, on the shot crew, I um, we got opportunities to get task force leader and some of those kinds of skills. And then once I got off and was in fire planning and FMO, I. Still traveled and got like my division soup and stuff, but I traveled with two different teams. So the Northwest Area team, which at that point was out of Southwest Oregon, gotcha. I just like the the um, IC and yeah. Deputy IC and just it was a great group of people. So I traveled with them to like 
from about 2000 to 2011 as a division soup. And then 2012, I jumped on. It's what's the old Blue Mountain team, which turned into Team Four, which turned into Team Nine, and now it's Team Six. So <laughs> it's, but it's the same team. Yeah, it yeah. just has it's just transitioned. It's through a new name every new four names. years. <laughs> and I've been on it ever since. And then I did my ops. I got my ops section chief in 2014, and so now I travel with the team doing ops section chief. Gotcha. Um, operations section chief, and so. Um, and I still do that. And the, the once I retired, I still maintained the lead ops position of the team and still staffed the crew and, you know, did all the functions that the lead operations would do for getting your group together and, yeah, um, yeah for the season. But now I, I've transitioned to a um, alternate, which is a much better space to be when you're retired, especially because you're not in the mainstream loop. Of I was going to say that um, it's it's huge because you you're not sitting there looking at stuff coming through email or someone walking down the hall and and I just I was like no I'm not in the loop there anymore I'll come and you know fill in and but I don't want to be the lead ops because there's too much policy changes all the time and things that just go on and. I'm retired. Yeah. Yeah. Enjoy so. retirement. You don't need to be jumping into lead ops if you don't have to. Dang. So, so yeah. jumping on it, uh, not necessarily jumping, but that transition of, you know, of being on a hotshot crew and, and being a college athlete, mm-hmm. hotshot crew, and then and being on an incident management team. Can you speak to speak to the, the similarities to that or the, the nuances of growth through that? Because those are all... I mean, just one, just one more intensity level up from mm, one another. Right. So, um, repeat that question. Yeah, just talk to as far as like, just how that teamwork looked or how that oh, intensity teamwork. amplified. Yep, yep. So, um, yeah, on the shot crew, I would say my fire management skills, obviously, and leadership skills evolved over the years. Um, back when I was doing supervision on the shop crew, it was, it's pretty focused, your fire, yeah. you know what I mean? And um, I also, um, you know, being somewhat of a rookie supervisor, used different tactics than when I evolved that would be like, mm, I wouldn't want to be treated like you know what I mean yeah but like present circumstances like you're on the line like there's different there are intensities for that there definitely is and I would say I probably use that intensity level for all when it really wasn't necessary Mm -hmm. for all supervision because I was intense at that point you know and as I evolved and had more training and more leadership courses and stuff um it became uh, my leadership skills evolved, and I became more of a trying to figure out how to value everybody yeah. in, in the positions. And obviously, the intensity levels in terms of your span of control and your um, knowing your policies and um, just things that you're responsible for. For instance, even a division soup, you know, the chunk of ground and the resources that are on that chunk of ground and their safety and meeting objectives and, you know, understanding the local units um objectives and the the agency administrator and stuff same with an ops chief you know yeah that's a Um, lot of things to juggle yeah a lot of things to juggle so obviously fire management scope and intensity increased um with those positions and then having the expectation that you're still gonna when you're on a fire assignment your job your day job doesn't go away so some of that stuff was sometimes quite the balancing act um 
And, um, but yeah, I would say, um, yeah, as, as my jobs got higher into management, it obviously got more complex. Yeah. And, and even with that, with the hotshot crew, like intensity level, you know, you model what you've been led by. Yeah. And so in that era, and I mean, even, even still true, like there's, there's a reason that that hotshot crews are, are the way that they are. Yeah. And so, um, but in, in, in that whole era of, of leadership, was there, was there one person or a handful of people that in your young career that you were like, I want to be like them? Yeah, there were, there were people that were definitely mentors that I thought I, and one of them, um, was Kurt Wiedemann, our ranger, district ranger. Um, one of them was Dale Gardner. Well, there was actually two, Dale Gardner and Carl West that were the incident commander and deputy of the um, Northwest Area team. And those two, because they were really good, it didn't matter. They would have a crew boss meeting and have crew bosses come in and say, how are we doing as a team? And give them an opportunity to have a voice in how they thought things were going. And obviously you get some... You have to kind of cut through what's real and what's not. Yeah. But I really um, appreciated that. And he did the same with like division soups. We got invited into the meetings like, at the know, end of the day, want to know thing. what's going on. So they very much valued from the ground up the input to help them make the overall um, strategies and objectives for the fire. And, and he just treated people like they were real, you know, you, you, whatever crew member you are walking down, it doesn't matter. He's going to stop and talk to you or whatever and so I really valued those um, skills and, and just the personalities that they maintained so I really Dale Gardner and Carl West were at the top of the list Kurt Wiedemann for the same sort of reasons I remember once Kurt um, it's a burn boss you know that that gets intense too yeah one burn boss and and you know burning and and he always gave his expectations when we'd have our burn boss meeting and stuff. It was like, he, he says, this is a shared risk. He goes, if something happens, we're, we're sharing this because I'm, you know, leadership here. And yeah. it was never like, it's your fault. Who's going to, you know, you shouldn't have done that. You know what I mean? You didn't yeah. feel like you were on the chopping mm-hmm. block. You always knew he had your back. He, he always just announced it. That's this huge. Is, unless it's negligent. You totally. know, if it was negligent, different story. But mm-hmm. it was always a shared risk. And those were things that I appreciated about him that's awesome and then you know in in my when I was on the shop crew tube I guess back up a little I always I did some other stuff yeah in the winter time I worked in budget and finance um, as a temporary and um, personnel just helping him with projects yeah. um, because since I had a business degree and stuff and I did some um, back to the fire investigative the Huckleberry fire um, <laughs> I had to go through all the fire boxes and try to compile an investigative report to defend, to give to the lawyer to help defend, like when structures were lost or something. Mm-hmm. There was a couple of claimants that, you know, it was either lost grazing land or structures or something. And so I went through all the fire boxes. And one of them, I, that's where I first met your dad. And <laughs> over and uh, he thought I was a lawyer. He told me later. <laughs> Because I was all dressed up. Ma'am? Like, a lawyer? Oh, my God. So we laughed about that because it was like, yeah, far from a lawyer. I'm with you, buddy. <laughs> buddy, we're in this fight together. 
Because I was interviewing him because I had to go interview people too. I went yeah. through the fireboxes and then I had to interview people and he was one of them I interviewed. Oh, uh, classic. I don't remember if it was the Huckleberry, if it was another fire. I don't remember. But anyway, that's why you thought I was a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny. But anyway, so I, I did some of that kind of work. And so um, the third person... Um, bring it back around to the people who helped influence me. Terry Porter was in charge of that shop, and he was the same sort of person. He just, like, handed me stuff, gave me guidance, gave me decision space, and um, so that was a good experience. He was another one of those. I'd say those were the, That's the, awesome. the top ones. I really like that that concept of, at the end of the day, going back to the, you know, the ops here. It's like, hey, let's bring in people that yeah. whatever worked through that shift and worked through our planning that we've mm-hmm. been that we've been planning for the past three days yeah. that we've, we've put together a plan. Let's get some real feedback. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And it wasn't an every night thing. It was like maybe a couple times during the fire assignment. Yeah. He would just for get sure. things going, pull people in, yeah, just a hey, pulse check. Go, and then be able to filter out what was real and what wasn't, what was just kind of, you know, complaining. Yeah. For lack of a better word. Yeah. But. <laughs> That's a polite way to put it. <laughs> Weed through the BS. Um, so then, um, you get to that FMO position, uh, what, you know, what was that like for you to reflect one in your career? And obviously as an FMO, you, you want to be doing X, Y, and Z. You want to mm-hmm. be doing things that you've been really passionate about, but can you kind of speak to the reflective piece of that, of whatever, a second or two where you said, man, I'm, I got here. This is pretty mm-hmm. cool. And I, again, um, getting there was a lot of diversity in jobs and both online fire large fire and local fire duty officer type stuff and prescribed fire and just the diversity of jobs I held I think I grabbed a little bit of skills from each of them to add um, policy planning that's important yeah Um, understanding um, you know and then just my ability to do models as well um, for like the woofses and stuff when you have an uncom- incoming team coming in for a large fire mm-hmm. for in briefs debriefs that kind of stuff and um, so diversity in, in jobs gave me diversity in skill sets and then just my leadership styles and fire management um, evolving over the years and my whole goal of an FMO was to um, is team again it's mm-hmm. that team and I wanted to hear what people I want people to feel valued whether you're just the first person out of high school on the hand crew um, you know squad leader whatever and and make sure that you invest where do you want to be I had one of the things I did is I had a big old chart on the wall that had all well the permanent not the temps but yeah. the permanent position people and this is their qualification right now they're either a crew boss or burn boss whatever and then so I could easily track like who do we need to get in to you know, with limited funds, who do we need to get into a, you if had that's that, where they want to go. You had that visual board for yourself. Yes, I had that so that that's I could awesome. look and that made it easier with conversations that it looks like, you know, you're, yeah. are you ready for a crew boss? Or do you think you mentally, blah, blah. And mm-hmm. then you could invest in people because they are your strongest asset. And yeah. so um, team environment, um, giving people decision, decision space. Um, sometimes you solicit input. And then make a decision and explain why. And other times you just make a decision because you need to because of the whatever the intensity or whatever the situation is. And then explain afterwards. But to me, it's always been important to explain why you made a decision. And some people won't buy it and some people will. But at least they know where you were coming from. Right. And so um, just 
reflecting on creating a good team was what I wanted to do. That's before. awesome. And the hotshot crews and stuff. And they were always very respectful and everything. And I think I got respect from them because they knew that I had come up through their ranks right. too. You'd done your time. Um, and not as much as some of those folks did, but... Seven years is still a yeah. lot. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, so, um, yeah. That's special though to, to come in with, with all that diversity and, and to set a tone. I think that's that's obviously mm-hmm. so important when it yeah. comes to team, um, to teamwork and, and yeah. just, you know, going in even into like a training schedule of just like, hey, yeah. here's the crew coming on. This is what the district's yeah. doing. Um, but to set a tone as an FMO and I love that visual. That you and, had. and then just balancing. Well, when I first got into the position, Oh, there was some real friction going on. So we had to kind of do some team building to say, you know what? We don't talk to your temporary, this engine captain's temporary employees, bad mouth this. It's like, we're all a team leadership here. Yeah. And so if you don't like something, you go have a one-on-one conversation or we would bring it to a Monday morning meeting and we discuss, but let's, we can't have this backstabbing. It's just cancerous to the team. And so we were focused on just, creating a positive work environment and and team and and uh, supporting each other. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Instead of tearing each other down. Yeah, that definitely so, comes from the top. Yeah, and absolutely. And that's all you. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. And so, um, and then, you know, m- people want decision space. They want to, they don't want to feel like, should I make that? Should I go ask someone if I can make that? If it's within their capabilities, give them some decision space, you know. I love that phrase so much because it's, Decision yeah. space is just like it's not like this. Yeah, it has parameters. There's parameters, but, there's, but you have. It's not like you're looking yeah. at someone like yes or no right now. Tell me. It's like yeah. okay, here's you know you have this space. You get to decide, and then yeah. you know maybe come back to me if you're not someone who can right. do those snap decisions. And, and if it didn't go so well, um, then we just talk about what we would do differently. Yeah, yeah. what we learned from that. Yeah. So. Yeah. Awesome. And then also rewarding. I think one of your questions was. What kind of a leader were you as far as... Um, oh, yeah. Praise in public or criticism silence. Um, praise in... I do praise in public because I think people need to recognize and give a shout out. And it just makes people feel good when everybody likes a mm-hmm. little pat on the back. You totally. Know? But discipline, definitely not. Um, unless the, there might be a rare situation that it's so confrontational that you have to kind of move on it. But for the most part, criticism and stuff is pulled to the side and... Same with discipline and stuff. It's it's not made known to everybody. It's not yeah. a gossip yeah. column and um yeah, but yeah, definitely your share of discipline over the years as well. Oh I bet. <laughs> I can only yeah, imagine that stories. Was a little HR le- learning lessons that we've learned over the years too. Huh. So do I have time for a funny story? Yeah. You have so much time. Yep. Okay. All the time <laughs> in the world. <laughs> so that first year I detailed in to the um, FMO, when the new folks come on, you got to really lay out expectations because they're coming right from high school to a whole new environment where some sort of music might be offensive to someone else. And so just laying it out and giving examples of... Mm-hmm. Um, Workplace you know, what, etiquette. What, yes. And then when it came to the Type 2 crew, you know, the four staffing a squad off of every district. And so we laid out Type 2 crew expectations and... The zero tolerance for harassment, the zero tolerance for um, drugs, alcohol influencing, because you fit for work doesn't mean you go drink till two in the morning and you show up thinking, if you're not fit for work, you're you're not fit for work because we'll be able to tell if you're hungover. Yeah. And um, 
and absolutely zero tolerance for drugs. Well, the first crew we sent out went to Northern California. There was two kids right off the uh, right out of high school, and I get this call at like nine o'clock at night, a week into the assignment, and I'm like, oh my goodness, this is the crew boss, but this can't be good. <laughs> and Derek's all like. Uh, Trish, yeah, we have a problem. And I'm all like, okay, what's the problem? And two individuals, um, the new ones, uh, it was really hot in North, maybe this was 2009. This was 2009, yeah, because it was when nothing else was really happening, but California was on fire, and so it was Northern California, and that's where they were. But it was so dry, they had little smoking areas around the camp, you know, for people to smoke. Well, these two individuals were smoking pot in the smoking area, <laughs> and a security person walked by and smelled it, and so... Oh, wow. Anyway, he busted Not them. smart. Oh, my goodness. And so You're Derek, asking for it. Derek's like, I need help. What do I need to do? And I go, they need to come home. But they got the, they got the, they knew the expectations. They knew exactly what they were doing. Demo them. Send them home. They're fired. And so anyway, Derek, you know, and he goes, well, and then he talks a bit and he goes, well, we can't get them out of here for a day or two. And it's going to be really awkward and uncomfortable on the crew. And I said, put them somewhere else and then put, you know, put them somewhere else until we can get them home, and um, it didn't take as long as we thought. But anyway, I had called Brenda Yonker, who's the AFMO, right? <laughs> so they come in um, Sunday night. They flew into Boise, the two individuals, and then I just met them at the district at like 10 o'clock at night or whatever. Oh and I just said, I hope this was worth it. You know, you, you can make a lot of money on these crews and gain a lot of experience. I really hope this was worth it. Now take all your stuff. I want all your gear right here. And... One kid felt kind of bad. The other kid was like, rah, rah, rah. they threw his gear down. He jumps in his car and speeds out of there. And I told him, you're basically fired and we'll begin in contact with you, right? Well, yeah. I learned a lot about HR that, that little incident. <laughs> it's not so, so easy, you know. is it? <laughs> so Monday morning, I come in to work and Brenda's on the phone. And she's like, because then HR is in Albuquerque mm-hmm. by then. We right. don't have our own on our force. And on my FMOs on the phone and I can hear her going that's too bad I don't care what you think because she was looking for in the 52 you cut where yeah. you can either lay people off or you terminate them terminate there was no you can't terminate someone and she goes where's this little slot that says fired and he's like you can't fire them it has to be HR and Brenda goes oh too late they're fired and she was being really sassy with her. that usually goes well so she hangs, she hangs up and she comes and tells me what she did. And then the next thing I know, here comes the ranger and he comes walking over and he comes into my office and he shuts the door. And he hey, goes, Trish, are you busy? <laughs> and he goes, so I just got a call from the Forest Soup who got a call from the lead HR in Albuquerque stating someone was really nasty to the HR person about this individual caught doing drugs and blah, 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 blah. I'm all like... That was Brenda, and I wondered <laughs> if that would be an issue. He goes, fix it. And then he turns around and walks Simply put, here's your decision-making space. So, yeah, literally. <laughs> make it happen. So I called this guy, and he was fired up. Yeah. His name was Dwayne Padilla, and we actually became pretty good friends throughout the year because we had a lot. He was very much a resource for me to go to after that, but good. I had to calm him way down. <laughs> yeah. No, I understand. You absolutely are right. You have a right to be upset. And yep, I get it. Nope, that's my FMO. We'll have a discussion and we'll deal with it. And 
then finally I just had to say, and what would you do? So let me give you the example. These guys are on a fire. They got caught smoking pot. Um, they can't hang out on the crew and they need to come home and they can't work. He goes, well, all you needed to do was tell them your intentions are to fire him, fire them, and they'll, you will be in contact with them um, when the decision is made, but you will be on leave without pay until then. And so, anyway, it was as simple as that. Just a little different terminology. Just a slightly different wording. Love it. Yes. Ah. Anyway. (laughs) I cannot imagine the fear of God that would be within me and some of my just fellow people of an FMO meeting you at the district at a a late night. That's that's terrifying. (laughs) I wanted to make sure he knew I knew. And that it was not acceptable. And I wanted to look at him, really, and just say, what part of the crew expectations we went over, like, five days ago did you miss? Yeah. (laughs) You know? So, anyway. Anyway, that was was a crazy little story. Yeah. One of many, I'm sure. Um, Okay, so we've talked about role models, your time as an FMO. Um, You've talked about Logan a little bit. um, But what was that like managing... Managing having a kid and, and being there for her own career of, of being an athlete and being a kid in school and, mm-hmm. and doing that. What was that like? So um, a balancing act. And again, Mark and I um, took turns. And um, even before work-life balance really became a theme, which it is now, totally. I practiced it and I expected the employees to practice it. Mm-hmm. Um, as well, like hunting season and everything else, mm-hmm. you know, we might be prescribed learning. Yeah. Let's make a schedule. Yeah. Who's who's got this tag? Who's got this? We gotta we have to burn. Yeah. So mm-hmm. who's doing what? And so it's balancing, and that's what I tried to do with uh, miss a few swim meets, um, miss a school a few school events, but make some. Yeah. You know, make as many as you can. And, yeah. Um, and actually, at that point in my career, I was to a point where. Um, um, I, I had the avail the ability to totally you know especially like a duty officer or something I would just be and then when I went on a fire Mark just made sure he was home yeah and so and I would only go on a couple three fires a, a summer on the team so um I wasn't I was an alternate so for that reason and then yeah. that way Mark could go on fires as well so we just balanced it that's how we managed but and then when she got older it wasn't a big deal because. Yeah. She would go hang out with friends in high school or whatever and stay yeah. here. Yeah. So. Anyway. What was it like having your spouse in in that in that realm as well and kind of come up coming up through the ranks and having him still on the forest? Well, it wasn't bad because we really didn't work together after the shot crew. We were on two different shot crews, and a lot of times we wouldn't even see each other. And like, for instance, 1988, <laughs> their crew went. And they went to Canada, and our crew dug line for three weeks around prescribed burn units. And then we finally got dispatched to um, Yellowstone. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and then we just, we didn't see each other all year. They came home, we, we never saw each other. And so... That sounds like Lily and Scott. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, and then we just, different paths, he got off the crew and went into recreation and then fishery. Well, and then he jumped back on the crew for a few years when I had Logan, he actually took the foreman position that I had. Oh, wow. Sounds a little weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got off and then, uh, but it wasn't like he wasn't qualified for it. And right. so, and then he did a few years and then he jumped back into fisheries. So um, we've always had kind of different and um, worked in different departments and stuff. So, and so, I worked at the SO quite a bit, you know, that time frame. And so 
I was in a different building than he was too. So. Yeah. So did you plan the winter baby so you could go back to the crew, or was no? That it was a- actually a it was actually a um, late May baby, and no, it was not a planned baby. Oh. <laughs> we love you, Logan. Does, does she know? <laughs> oh, you know, I don't know if she does or not. Yeah. <laughs> we can edit that out. <laughs> Uh, so, but but yeah. did you had the full intention to go back that I summer? I did not not when she was a baby, but the following summer. Gotcha. So I I um, did fields tech stuff and gotcha. thinning crew ran yep. the thinning crew that year, and um, and then I was going to go back because I helped recruit and jump back into the foreman duties over the winter. And then as it got closer, I went, uh, I don't think I can do that because the amount of time required to be away is just yeah. so much. And she did you was, have like a plan like? Was Mark off the crew? Yeah, Mark wasn't going to... Yeah, Mark was off the crew. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, Mark yeah. was off the crew, um, definitely. And uh, But still, it just didn't seem... It just didn't seem feasible, practical. And yeah. So I just made the decision, nope, I'm not going to do it. So so that was the end of my hotshot career. Dang. Yeah. So, it's pretty wild. Which was okay. Yeah. Was, yeah, it was fun while it lasted, but I don't miss anything... I mean, every five to seven years. Is yeah, but your timeline, job. your timeline naturally was like, hey, we're kind of synced up here. Here's a natural decision space. Um, okay, that's. I mean, that's that's so much cool stuff. But do you have? I mean, you've shared one funny story, but uh, decades on dirt roads with theme of of the podcast and our meeting with people like you. You know, you've spent a lot mm-hmm. of different decades doing doing cool stuff outside is there are there a handful of moments or is there one pivotal moment oh there's quite a few crazy stuff i'll give a couple examples so like in 1987 when we were down it got a late start to the fire season that year and actually most of the crew members had to go back to college by the time really the fire season. i mean we'd been in nevada and the acorn fire and a couple other things but it was the silver Gleese and longwood and all those fires in 1987 and um the fire we rolled on was the Longwood fire, and it was on part of a, it was on the Tequilma commune, and so part of it, right, um, not far from Cape Junction, so part was in California, mm-hmm. Oregon border, and that was a very interesting, um, our briefing that night when we got there to the fire, that the engine crew had got their, uh, got guns pulled on them the night before. Wait, can you, what's this commune? It's, it's a just a commune of a bunch of hippies that live off the land, live in cardboard structures, live however. Whoa. It's just a commune of, Yeah, I don't know how to describe it, honestly. I think it's still there to this day. But anyway, um, we're in there, and our job was, they had a dozer, so they were digging lying around, and then we were burning, mm-hmm. the crew was, afterwards, and there was just us and the dozer. At that point and there was a lot of interesting people running around and there was a lot of booby traps because they were growing pot and all kinds of stuff and you would just you'd be and we were really spread out because um you know the, it was two miles of line and the 20 people will get pretty spread out yeah yeah and so um you could just feel the hair you're like someone's in the woods there you know because they would just pop out of the woods and oh that's dirty and 
And was it? It wasn't like a nudist. Oh, no, no, nope, that's no. good. No, <laughs> no, but I will describe one lady that was on there. That please do. Was pretty interesting. But this one guy, he's all like, "I'm not going to say much, except that there's a lot of money going up in smoke out there." And you, I just like, smell it. That's exactly because it was just creepy. Because you know that kind of scared you when they said they pulled the gun on the engine crew the night before. You know. Yeah, you're. I'm just going to play stupid here and pretend like I don't even know what you're talking about. Yeah. Anyway, so it gets later into the night, and there's this lady, and she's like eight months pregnant, and she has no shoes on, not much on for shirt, yeah, no support, no nothing, and she's just running around the woods screaming, literally. The trees are screaming. Can't you hear them screaming? They're dying. And This is all while you're burning. Mm-hmm. So you've got a burn plan in place. You're dragging a torch, and you've got people this are burning. I was actually on the holding crew at that point, so I was holding. But people are burning. I think it's and worse in that scenario to just be standing there, like yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, and then here comes this guy riding this orange moped down. It sounds like a weird story, but it was all it all happened. We're like I don't know thirty some hours into it, and you're all yeah. just thinking, <laughs> Am I hallucinating? <laughs> So he's riding this orange moped and he literally flips it. On the, the dozer and the line? Cat, and the dozer line. And <laughs> Sam Wiseman and I look at each other. And just, uh, what are we, we supposed and to do? So, what do we do with this? But we're, we didn't realize it's dark, but we're protecting... And it's what they got, so no, no offense to anybody, but cardboard structures. They're living in cardboard structures. There was a house. This lady who was screaming about the trees screaming, running around. I thought she was going to have her baby, honestly. Yeah. And when it got daylight and we were burning out around this one house, and that was her house. And I thought they were, I, I just had the impression, because it was like, you're killing trees, da 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 environmentally friendly. Well, that house had just stacks and stacks of garbage and pampers and everything. You couldn't even hardly see the house. There was so much garbage around it. Oh. And so anyway, we're burning around, and she was so happy. Oh, you've saved our home. And so she went in, and she had these mushrooms and stuff, and she made us a sandwich and brought it all out to us, made us all these sandwiches, and I, I couldn't eat it. <laughs> I just saw all the pampers on the porch and just thought, I don't think I'm in for salmonella or whatever else. So yeah. I didn't eat it. But anyway, we saved your house, and all was good. And there's actually a magazine... And a book. It's in a book that... Did you know Caleb Taylor? Do you remember Caleb? I mean, just stories about him or anything. His dad wrote, so he went out and interviewed us on that fire. And there's a... I have a book at home that's signed by him, but he has a picture of us in there on the shot crew on that fire, on the really? Longwood fire. And then also, for some reason, they printed it in a magazine in like 1997 or something. It was really weird. It was like someone goes, look, but resurfaced, you know, so there's a picture of us. All you know, wow. walking up the fire line. Yeah. And, What's um, the book? Do you remember? Um. Yeah, it's called Fire Line. I think I have it at home. I'll just take a picture and send it to you. Okay, sweet. But anyway, there's a there's a picture in there of us <laughs> on, on the crew on that particular fire. So it was really an interesting. That's uh, wild. Fire. So that was a crazy one. And then another another one. There was several, but this one with Josh Diocides. <laughs> Did he tell you about that? He told me about uh, you being his trainer in Alaska. Mm-hmm. So Did he tell you stories? I because I, I prompted him on this and I said, I need to ask some people about Trish. And he said, Well, just just provoke her about a training assignment. And I yes. said, Okay, I'll do that. That was the craziest training assignment. So <laughs> I was gonna go up as a type three IC to Alaska. This is when I was an FMO 
And I tried to balance it so people who were on teams could go do, that were permanent people, like Brenda was a permanent division soup, so, yeah. or ops, go do it, and balance it so everybody could, and so I just took random, I went to Texas one year for 24 days in like June, and anyway, we went, I was going to Alaska as a type 3 IC, and they said, um, Renee called me and said, would you go as a task force so that Josh can get his task force leader signed off? Would you go as a task force instead of an IC3? I said, yeah, sure, whatever. Yeah. So anyway, we went to Alaska and um, we got crazy assignments. So we <laughs> left Anchorage and we flew. You know, it's super cool to go to Alaska on some of these remote. Oh, totally. I mean, it's a totally remote. Um, if you're a hunter, it'd be your dream. Yeah. I'm a vegetarian. Yeah. So. But it was still <laughs> fun, you know. Yeah. So we fly... In and we landed all these little islands and pick up native crews, yeah. you know. And so we couple of native crews and we end up um, we flew into Circle, which is where the road ends in Alaska, it's as far as you can drive up. Um, and there's like a little store and just a little village there and interesting people. Of course. And then we flew in a helicopter 12 miles north of that to um, an island that, um, and our job was is to protect, they were native um, ground, private property, native Indian ground. And so we were putting lines around them and putting hose lays in to protect because it was a huge fire. Yeah. And that's, you know, up there you have different levels of management. If you're like near a toke or something, it's all at it. You go for it. But the further you go out, you just are protecting values at risk. There's yeah. no point protection. So we were digging line on this crazy little island, and there's this crazy little cabin, and there's a crazy guy who, I don't know if you've seen Deliverance, the movie. He kind of looked like that. And again, I don't like to shame people, but he had hardly any hair. It was down to here. It was real thin, and he just mumbled a lot, and he was just like, so we went to his house and said, we're going dingoes. I don't like you guys being here, and I don't know. And Whoa. <laughs> and he was barefoot, and the mosquitoes are horrid, and they have a lot of the same vegetation as we do around here. They had thorn rose, or wild rose, and and knick and a bunch of that kind of vegetation types. But the the rose bush was this, and the mosquitoes were horrid. But it was king salmon season, so he was harvesting. He has a little canoe, and and he had this like little net. But he's barefooted, and he's harvesting all this. And we we just went to to explain him where yeah. and be what we're doing, and. And uh, it was actually his wife's place, but he would, he didn't appreciate us being there. Okay. Um, and so jo Josh is like, you need to go talk to that guy because I'm too scared to go. <laughs> Trish, you need me. Or you need to come with me or yeah. something. And I need someone with me. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, uh, he creeped Josh out bad. But anyway, I think that's fair. <laughs> And we had a couple of jumpers that ended up there, too. Um, and so we're doing our business the day or whatever. The next day, here comes this jet boat. We're right on the Yukon, right? So here comes this jet boat, and you're just, wee-hoo, wee-hoo. And then there's this kid that's like 12 years old on a skidoo behind us. <laughs> what? And they pull into this landing area right by that cabin, and that lady gets out, and she's three sheets to the wind. Drunker than drunk, and she is screaming at her husband that's in the cabin, and they just get into this huge, and Josh is looking at me, and I'm just like... What a training assignment. It was so bizarre. People management. And they and he got so mad, he went and got in his little canoe, and he just paddled off somewhere. 
And then that lady was down there, and Josh was all like, I guess we have to go talk to her now, because she's here. It's gone. <laughs> we give it a few hours. Yes. So we were done. down there, and that lady, oh my goodness, she had pickled brains. And she would, she was like, what are you guys doing on my property? This is my property and my dad's property. Man. Well, we're putting some land in. We were asked to, do you want us to protect it from the, oh yeah. Would you like to come into my cabin and have some tea? She would change like that on a dime. Whoa. And do that, and... <laughs> We're all like, no, we're not. We're government employees. We're not allowed to do that. But thank you so much mm-hmm. for the offer. And it just went on for, anyway. So we were there for about three days. It was just weird. And then they said, oh, we have a new place for you to go. Send us. So we got on a boat and we head up to this new area. And um, everything we were going to be supported by was from um, boats. And so the natives from Circle had little boats with little gas motors or whatever and so we decided that since everything we were doing was supported by boat that we needed to get a fueling station up there and set up a fueling station so we ordered you know fuel and they had to drive it from um wherever the last point um probably fairbanks i guess um to circle and so we got word that it arrived and we're like okay and so a day goes by where's the fuel Oh, it's, we, we got it. It's over. We need the fuel. No, we got it taken care of the boat operators and stuff. Were, and then pretty soon it became evident that that fuel was not coming out here. We were all like, we have more we're going to go do. We need the fuel out here, not 20 minutes to circle yeah. via boat. And so finally I grabbed one of the smoke jumpers and said, come on, let's go get the fuel. So we had him drive us back. Well, they had it. Some guy had it in his basement and they'd filled up the community around there and so there was like probably 60% of the barrel left but nobody said anything nobody so we just loaded it on the boat and took it out set up the fueling station or whatever and and the other thing is when you're that remote you know they just come with a airplane every so on they they give you paracargo and so and then it just they dump it and then it was really hot for Alaska that year it was like 80 degrees in the tundra and all those um, tussle, I forget what the little grass head, bobbly head things are. They're difficult to walk in, but you'd have to go out there and shag all the stuff out of there, and then shag the shoots and everything. And oh, so gosh. it was, it was a, it was a, it was a chore all the way around to survive there. <laughs> Dang. Anyway, so then, and then Josh, that's where Josh found a bottle um, on the side of a little inlet off of the Yukon, and it was literally from like. 50 years ago, there was a note in it, and he took it home, to. and I asked him, what did the note say? And someone from, I'd have to ask him, but from another country, I don't remember where it was from, it might have been Russia, had put a, a note as a kid or whatever, put the year and everything, and then he found it, and he took it home. Does he still have it? I Maddie, think so. you need to find out. I want to know what it he says. He probably does. He has buried treasure. He found yeah. buried treasure. Yes. Yeah, and that fire that we were on, that was like 200,000 plus acres, mm-hmm. was actually, it was a fire from the year before that continued burning in the roots oh. underneath, and they didn't know it, and then it stopped back out in that summer, and so then we had another big fire, and so that's where. So then we were done there, and we go back to Fort Yukon, and we gear up, and they say, we're going to send you out to the Sheenjek River. There's a fish and wildlife cabin there that we want you guys to protect, and so we're sending you and one crew and they said the bears have been bad out there 
do you do you want a shooter or not? And I'm all like, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, hello. Shooter. <laughs> like a shooter it's different, with me. Because when you go to Yellowstone, they teach you bear spray and blah, blah. It's a whole different yeah. bear yeah. tactics there yeah. than it is Alaska. in Alaska. Alaska, <laughs> you want one. You yeah. want a shooter with you. I said, I'll take a bear shooter. Or a shooter. And so they flew us. It's like 60 miles, air miles, um, up past Circle, up to the Shinjek River. It's like right below Arctic. You're out there. We are out there, and there is no communication. I mean, it is very poor, and so we had to, one of the native crews, they got a big old um, antenna, uh, a tree, and then they, they're used to this kind of stuff, and they, when they did, they stuck a big antenna. So if someone was in an area within a radius, aerially, you could mm-hmm. reach, but you couldn't, like, call anybody. So if we had an emergency, it would have been tough to get mm-hmm. anybody out of there. <laughs> So tough is a light word to use. So, anyway, we saw this cabin and it is like a shack of shack. I mean, the wind blows and you got snow through the things and there's wolf heads all over stacked because they had killed wolves. Yeah, yeah. And when we showed up, there's wolves howling. And Josh was like, oh my gosh, there's wolves. There's wolves We've got a shooter. We're good. And that's what I yeah. said too. And so, but the good thing was, is there was no mosquitoes there because we were on a sandbar on machine jack. And oh, so the wolves kept the mosquitoes away. So that was really nice. So we set up our tents and everything. And we, we had the native crew and we had a helicopter. It was a BLM contract. And it would come every three days and just land and bring food and stuff in the newspaper and whatever. And so one day, um, well, I'll tell this story first. So on the crew, they were ordered. It's always easier to order commissary when you're on a fire because you can get it cheaper and then they take it home. So they load up the yeah. native crews. They load up. They get like a case of, of snooze or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, and cigarettes or whatever. <laughs> this one guy... He ordered all this, and he somehow I guess he didn't get along with the other people on the crew, and so he's and Josh is like, I think he's crushing on you, this guy. <laughs> so he comes to me and goes, "Can I keep my um, Copenhagen in your tent because I'm afraid these other people are going to try to steal it?" And I'm all like, "No, nope, no, no, sorry. that's a no-go sign. <laughs> We're in rural Alaska. Yeah, this, no. is, this is not a trick." And so I, I didn't go further that or whatever, but one day. We're sitting there, and Josh got a kick out of this. So I was, I don't know what I was off something. Then I come back, and Josh is all like, your friend brought you a present. So what he would do is he would get up. I'd get up at like 5 and sit around the coffee pot because there's a trapper guy that was on the crew. They they always leave someone in camp to be the camp. Yeah. Cook, whatever. They don't call it that, but I won't say. Yeah. You take turns. Yep. And uh, he did it most of the time, but he always had trapper stories because he trapped the Yukon in the wintertime, so he always told me stories, and oh, it was cool. just fun to get up at 5 because you don't go on the clock till late because you work till midnight, you yeah. know? And so um, um, they were. this guy would go out and fish for grayling. That was a big thing on the Shinjek River is grayling, and he would boil the whole thing, eyeballs, guts, everything. And he, just, he ate everything. Well, he boiled this grayling fish, and I'm a vegetarian anyway. I don't eat fish either. And he comes and he brings a plate and he sets it down. And Josh is like, "You print fry your breakfast." <laughs> oh my god! Oh, you know he did it. <laughs> Josh watched him do it, and he's just loving it. He's yeah. funny. He's just he is encouraging out. it all the way. And so I just, I, I just kind of slowly made like, but you have to be careful where you dump your garbage too, because of the bears and stuff. And we did have a bear come through one night. But he was running. When he caught scent of people there, you could tell he 
he ran away. So we never had an issue with bears. That was that never was an issue. But the last and final craziness of this story is one day we were just finishing up a burnout around that that structure, and here comes the helicopter. And he sits down and he goes, "You won't believe what is up the river here." He goes. There is a guy with two dogs on a homemade raft coming down this river. And, I mean, we're talking, we're out in the middle of nowhere. And so we're like, where in the world could have he put in at, you know? And so, anyway, he, he ends up pulling into where we're at. And he is so skinny, and he just does not look well. He was a writer. I actually found him on the internet like a year later. But he had two Airedale dogs. One of them had porcupine quills all over Aww. his mouth. And they, he lost his gun somewhere on the river, so they'd been eating rose hips and fish for like two weeks or something. I'm surprised the guy was alive. And the dog was just like very unhappy. And so yeah. the jumper, they have bivy sacks there. Their gear is bivy sacks, so he threw everything out and he tried to put the dog in there and then pull the quills out. I learned later you're supposed to cut quills and then pull. Because when you pull, it pulls the, the barb mm -hmm. in. I didn't know that. But anyway, we could have probably solved that yeah. easier then and then they invited him to stay for steaks and stuff you know over the fire around the camp and at first I was a little leery and then I thought mm, no he's so skinny and so <laughs> yeah. no, this guy's had it. two weeks alone yeah. in the last now plus you got a shooter yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway we made a decision at that point he would have never lived um the river going down Shinjek was so um class three, class four, five rapid types before it hits the Yukon, he would have never made it and he would have died. Yeah. And so we just said, okay, this is life or death. And so we put him and his dogs on there. His dog, we were a little worried because we thought the one with the porcupine quills, this could be, if this ship goes down, we have a lot of explaining to do, right? Yeah. But anyway, they took him, they put him behind Fort Yukon where nobody could really see, let him out and said, use the phone. This is what we're going to do for you. Make yeah. your calls or whatever. And, but he, what he had done is he, he hikes, and then he, he writes. He documents and writes stories, and those poor dogs. He drags his dogs along. But anyway, at Arctic, he decided he was going to, you know, he wasn't on the timeline he was, wanted to be on, so he built this little raft, and he jumped on it and lost his gun and flipped the boat a few times, and Dang. dog got into porcupine quills. And, it happened and, upon Trish in the middle of Alaska. <laughs> it happened on Josh and I. Yeah, Josh and Trish, the training <laughs> assignment of a lifetime. <laughs> it was. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, oh so anyway, so we got him out of there, and yeah, that was probably the last of the exciting part. But that whole fire assignment had just crazy thing after crazy thing, you know. Crazy people in, like, crazy the most people. remote part of the yes. U.S. Yeah. Yeah. It happened upon just a was. random person. Yeah. You think, yeah. like, hey, I've got my people? Well, just on a raft. It's like Huck Finn floating down the yeah. 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 It's like, what? Oh, that's wild. Yeah. So I looked him up, and I don't know if I can remember his name, but he actually is on the Internet, and he had he'd published stories and stuff, and he had pictures of his dog. His dog lived. That was good. So. Wow. Anyway, you're a dog strategy. person, I can tell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Guy was fine, but the dog. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> Trish was worried about the dog. That's what mattered. That's awesome. So, oh yeah, so that was a, that was a crazy story. So there's many awesome. more, but that would take lots of beers and lots of liquor. <laughs> yeah, so. be here for a few more hours. Yeah. Yeah. That is like every person we interview. We're like, okay, we'll have to cut it off here. I know we yeah. could go like three more episodes, but yeah. 
But with all that being said, I mean, you know, good stories aside, you've you've shared a lot of campfires and early mornings and all that kind of stuff with with some really notable people that you're obviously still mm-hmm. able to talk about and talk to. Um, but with that being said, you know, what's what's some advice that you can give to to people like Catherine and I that, um, you know, are obviously females in an outdoor profession as we as we look to be, you know, moms maybe one day or as as young leaders look to go mm-hmm. up in management? What's, what's some advice there? You can do both. You can lead and be a mom. And I see a lot of dads wanting to be a dad too because really when you think back to the shot crew days, the dads, I know so many people that they didn't watch their kids grow up yeah. except in the wintertime, you know. And so now I think there's a different atmosphere and there's more encouragement to have a work-life balance. So that's that's totally important because, you know, your, your family is number one and your job is your job. Um, and then just, you know, if you want to do something, do it. And don't take, yeah, I, don't, I didn't take a lot of flack from a lot of people, um, you know. Um, I, I would say in my younger years, I had really good rapport, mutual respect from co-workers, male, female, whatever. And the higher you get up into management, it seems like it was more of a... Um, sometimes you came off as threatening, I would say. And so that's where it became. I had to kind of change um, how to approach things and stuff because um, th- there were some challenges, I would say, with different, like, um, rangers or whatever. Not Not... Overall, but yeah. you know, a couple of I would say a couple of the most conflicted people I worked with would have been up in the upper management levels where this is like, mm. Mm. so hold your ground and um, if you want to do something, just do it. And work life balance is the ticket. I mean, and you guys got lots of role models. Um, you know, you're from a family. I don't know what you're you're from a family of fired. Your mom was on the hot shot crew, so. yeah. Um, that's the first time I ever met her. I think we were out, <laughs> out at Two Color Guard Station. I think we I came out to cut a tree or something. And yeah. Your mom was out there. I, I remember my mom always talking about, like, when I first started her as I was growing up, I was like, Mom, who who are some people you looked up to? And she was like, Trish. Oh. Trish is the gal. <laughs> Trish is the gal, was the gal, always was, will be the gal. And so this is a really cool full circle moment for me, yeah. getting so, to interview someone that yeah. my so, mom looked up to. Yeah. Well, your mom was... Your mom was a hot shot too. She was she was a good strong person. Your dad, we, I had some funny stories about him, but I won't. Yeah. I'll keep those off. Off. Okay. He came we'll right keep out. Those off he here. came right out of school. Yes. <laughs> so, he, but no, he's come a long ways. I mean, really, look at where he is now. He's he's uh, well respected in fire management in the region and Washington office and stuff. So no, your dad's a good guy. So, but um, yeah. Holds your ground. And back when I was on the crew, when I started, there was only two females. It was me and Liz, Liz Cheney, and she was, I was 22, and she was 40-something. So there was quite the age gap there, and she was kind of a hippie and analyzed everything. So, how do you suppose this tree got here (laughs) as you walk under it? And it's like, I don't care. You're like, I don't care, I'm going to cut it down. (laughs) Oh, man. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for that, Trish. This, yeah. is, this yeah, has been a really cool you. conversation. Yeah, so. I think we'll cut it there. Yeah. Perfect. Right on. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. As always, please like, subscribe, or leave us a review. 
and remember to get outside.